The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. The Pure Hoops podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Pure Hoops podcast most definitely does reflect the views of our management. Here's three-time NBA champ BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman. Welcome to the Pure Hoops podcast. It's June 11th, 2020, exactly three months to the day from when the last NBA games were played. Since then, more than 115,000 Americans have died due to coronavirus. One death in Minneapolis at the hands of police and other similar cases have brought on energetic protests and a meaningful conversation on racism and police brutality. NBA players and others around the league have added their names, voices, and ideas to the national discussion. And the NBA has announced the structure of a plan to return to play starting at the end of July in Orlando. B.J. Armstrong and I will get into all of those topics with our guest, Howard Beck. We'll also discuss the oral history he put together for Bleacher Report on the 2000 Western Conference Finals between the Lakers and the Blazers that launched the Kobe Shaq dynasty. Here's that conversation with Howard Beck. Hope you enjoy. Well, B.J., as I always like to say, it's uh, it's special when you can bring a friend of the program onto the show. And uh, you know how I feel about all of these Basketball relationships I've been able to cultivate over the years. This one's super unique. I'd like to welcome back the one, the only, Mr. Howard Beck. Howard, how are you, my friend? I'm I'm doing all right. I'm glad to be the one and the only because I wouldn't want anybody else to be confused <laughs> with me or have to carry the burden of being some other Howard Beck. So. Well, there is only one jelly bean Beck, and that is you, my friend. <laughs> Um, Appreciate that. B- before we dig in, it's been a crazy week, obviously, all over a crazy couple of weeks all over the country. You being in New York and Brooklyn, uh, everything good by you? Everything calmed down a bit? Um, I'm not hearing helicopters, you know, like 24 hours a day outside my window anymore. So that's probably a good sign. Um, the sirens are still uh, fairly constant and it's, it's hard to know whether that's COVID related, whether that's protest related or whether that's just other general New York stuff. But I mean, yeah, obviously it's been a, a strange few months, um, a, a intense couple of weeks. Um, but in some ways, I feel like an encouraging couple of weeks too. you know, the masses of people that have been out marching in my neighborhood and others around here and around the country, around the world. Um, if, if there's any good to come out of all this, it's that everyone seems to be focused pretty squarely on this issue now um, of, of police brutality, of, of social justice, of racial justice. And the more I see people out there in the streets um, and, and using their voices and, you know, we can get into the NBA's role in this too, but I mean, the number of, of pieces I've seen written or just the number of, of players and coaches and former players, former coach, I mean, everybody um, is squarely focused on this. And I, I just, to me, I'm going to try to be an optimist and, and feel like, you know, maybe this is a turning point. Yeah, absolutely. And before we get to the the run-up of the return of the league, you know, the league, of course, uh, always ahead of the game, it seems, uh, on this issue compared to other leagues and other sports. But obviously, as a society, country, and a culture, um, 
that's we've been way behind on this issue. How, how do you think the NBA now is uh, collectively trying to go about uh, being a positive voice here, a, a voice for change? And, uh, you know, who do you see emerging uh, at the forefront? Well, it's interesting because right now it's not collective by the NBA. And maybe it's because they're all scattered and we don't have an active season going on right now because we are still in this state of suspension. So we don't, there's not a cohesive uh, NBA approach to this issue right now, nor necessarily team by team. What we see is just a lot of, you know, individual efforts, whether it's players writing in the Players' Tribune, um, whether it's, you know, Jalen Brown driving from Boston to Atlanta to go march in his hometown, or, you know, Tobias Harris, or Steph Curry and, uh, and Clay Thompson. I mean, we've, we've seen players, you know, in, in every market um, and all across the country, uh, just exercising their voices and, and making, making themselves heard. What I'm curious about is whether that will eventually coalesce into something that's more of a cohesive campaign by the NBA. And I, and I think it probably will. Knowing the, the league as we do, I, you know, look, they've got so much else on their plate right now just trying to get the league started again with a lot of obstacles, a lot of challenges to getting going in Orlando um, by the end of July. And so it, it, I, I think that that's taking up a, a lot of energy and a lot of headspace for everybody who works in, in the league, whether it's in the league office or with individual teams. But I do think... I, I would I, I would be surprised if, if there's not some sort of attempt by the league or a campaign, um, you know, fostered by the league to channel all this energy and all these voices into a, 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 a what could be a pretty powerful, you know, group effort um, across all 30 teams once the league resumes. You know, you know, Howard, one of the, uh, you know, the things that, you know, you just touched upon, could you give us what does take the temperature or kind of give us an update on how will they actually execute this? You know, talking about going to play down in Orlando and uh, can you give us some, give us an update on how or what that could possibly look like? Well, you probably will know more than I do and sooner than I will be Jay, but, <laughs> but <laughs> the, the, you know, the, 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 the setup, it, it's clearly, they're straddling a fine line, right? Because safety has to come first. The reason the, the league was suspended in the first place was because there was a global health crisis with this coronavirus. And that has not gone away, uh, though some people are acting like it has. It's still a threat. It is still a concern. And it is still the most important thing for the league to navigate. You know, all the other things aside, the structure of, of the league and, and the number of games played and the playoffs and all these play-ins, all this stuff, is secondary to safety. And so they need to create this virtual bubble, but at the same time, they have to be sensitive to the fact that people are going to go into this and have to be there for, you know, potentially three months and, you know, do not want to feel like they're, they're prisoners of the league or of Disney <laughs> for that time. So it, it, it's tough. If you make it too much of a, of a passive bubble, then you are, running the risk of the virus being introduced into the, the NBA ecosystem. And if it's too strict, then it, it's just, it's tough for guys and, and guys may not want to do it. We're already hearing reports of, and I'm not surprised that there are players who are now conferring with each other about whether this is the right way to go, whether it's worthwhile. Um, these, these are tough issues, but the only way for the NBA to do this and do it successfully and to finish this season and to crown a champion is to do it in a way 
where the coronavirus does not derail the whole thing. And it's not just about, you know, the players who are obviously, you know, generally younger and in great health and, and probably not as susceptible. But, hey, you know, there's a lot we don't know about this virus, and it, it, it has killed otherwise healthy people in their 20s and 30s. But you also, of course, have coaches, some of whom are older. You have team staffers, some of whom are older. Uh, you got a lot of people who may not even know what their own underlying vulnerabilities are because sometimes you don't know what they are until it's until you've already caught something that is, has uh, you know caused harm. So um, it's you know it's it's tough. I mean I I still think there's a chance this doesn't happen. I think it probably will happen, but I think it'd be crazy for anybody to predict that this is all a certainty and will come off without a hitch. You know I'm glad you said that because. The margin for error here is so slim. There are so many factors at play that um, my brain hurts to even think about it. And then, you, and then, and then you think about the basketball aspect of this, right? We've been out of it for three months. One of the beauties of playoff basketball is that journey through the season, that chemistry, the the mission the top level teams are are on that makes playoff basketball so special. Now we've had that pause, momentum's gone, chemistry is kind of hibernating, and you don't know what guys have been doing. We've heard all the different stories about guys who have had access to places, guys who don't even haven't shot a ball in two or three months. So, you know, we've got seven weeks till games resume. Individuals are starting now, and we, we see the runway. Um, that's being proposed as far as, um, you know, team practices and getting this going. I mean, is there any way to predict what kind of quality of play we're going to see on the floor? I'm afraid it's not going to be very good, Eric. (laughs) Um, At least to start. I mean, imagine turning on the playoffs one day, the NBA playoffs, where, as you put it, you're seeing the, the, the teams at their absolute best, the best teams, the best players, playing their sharpest with their best chemistry, their best rhythm, all of that, their best timing. But imagine instead you're, those playoffs are starting in November of a normal year when right. teams have just gotten back together for a couple of weeks. And, and, and instead of it being, oh, we're working out the kinks in these first 10 games of the season, we're trying to figure out who we are and our identity and our chemistry. No, that, that's, those are playoff games all of a sudden. Um, and worse, to, as, as you noted, it, this is the longest layoff guys have ever had without even being able to train or, or even shoot. Um, it's not a normal off season. It's not like a lockout uh, situation like we had in 2011 or in 1998, because at least at those times, guys could still go play pickup. Guys could still go to, to gyms and work out. Nothing has been open, not team facilities, not local gyms down the block, I mean, everything. So the, the ramp up is is going to be a, a lot tougher. I don't know what these teams are going to look. I mean, nobody does. Like this is this is the great mystery um, on the basketball side of it. Putting all the virus stuff aside, what is anybody going to look like when we finally see them back on the court, presumably on July 31st? I don't know. I tend to think it's going to be a little messy at the beginning. You just hope nobody gets injured or that there, there are minimal amounts of injuries from, you know, trying to, to speed this thing up and getting back to, to basketball. Um, but I, 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 I got to think that there's going to be um, a, a deficit there on the basketball side. And on top of that, without fans in the building, 
it's just going to change the atmosphere and, and, and who knows what kind of effect psychologically and physiologically that has on the game, because you're just not playing in the same kind of environment. Yeah, that was going to be uh, the next point I bring up. And, you know, BJ, you know this better than anybody from playing in the old Chicago stadium. Howard, you know this from, you know, covering the, the Lakers back in the day during their three-peat, which we'll, we'll get to in a moment. But the home court advantage and the environment and the the, the buzz and the rush of that, um, this is going to be more of a, a summer league environment. I mean, Howard, I read somewhere that uh, they're talking about bringing the courts, the actual flooring down to Orlando and the home <laughs> team higher seed having their own floor down there is there any truth to that and and how do you see the home court advantage being a non-factor now as we're, we're going into these playoffs i'm skeptical that they're going to be bringing in the hardwood from from the various arenas i would i mean i i don't they... think i don't think the parquet is going to travel very well down to florida <laughs> you yeah. uh, i i i mean it's it's asking a bit much. Um, I think what they probably could do, and I'm just, I'm guessing here, it's just off the top of my head. I would think they could at least find a way to um, provide the, the, the kind of um, on-floor signage, the various logos of the various teams, and even maybe the baseline um, uh, designs and all that. Maybe they can, they can, they can do temporary versions of that, slap it down. But the problem is that, that you know, the way they, they make those things these days, they're seamless so that you're, you're not, it, it's not causing any problem with your, your footing. Sure. And if it's, if, if these are decals and things, then I, it might get a little bit uh, sketchy. So I don't know. I, I cannot imagine they're going to have 22 different floors from the various arenas there. That, that seems like too much effort. Um, I, the, you know, the bigger thing is, is the crowd and the lack thereof, because there, without a crowd, there is no home court advantage. And, you know, home court advantage is, is somewhat about the facility, somewhat about your, your, your floor or your whatever, just familiarity. But a lot of it, of course, is just the atmosphere. It's the fans. And there are ways they can possibly try to simulate that, but it's, it's all going to feel as fake as it is if it's just piped in. So, you know, how that impacts the game, um, how that, it, you know, I, I've said this you know, a few times in the last couple of weeks. If you're a, a, a one or two seed, even a three seed, you should not need home court advantage to beat anybody in the first round anyway. So it, I think it's irrelevant there where it becomes an issue potentially, or does become an issue is certainly conference finals. And then finals where that, that home court edge is, you know, often decisive or, or can be, you know, talent usually wins out in this league, but we've certainly seen any number of game sevens over, over the decades that are, you know, some of the most memorable games any of us have witnessed that, you know, the participants will tell you, yeah, if this game was back at our place, you know, would have gone the other way. I mean, it, it, it matters. And there's been studies of this, of, of how the home court edge matters in the NBA. It's, 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 it can't be dismissed, but I also think it can't be really simulated. The ideas that have been floated to try to make up for it with extra possessions for the higher seed or extra fouls or whatever, I think are silly. That messes with yeah. the integrity of the game. Sure. Um, I, I think this is a case where you just got to say, you know what? Tough. Sorry. It just, it's just not going to apply this year. It's an unusual year. You're fortunate just to get this thing back going and, and, and to finish it out. You know, you know, Howard, by, by all accounts, just listening, you know, I don't want to put you on the spot here. 
But I have to ask, what do you think this is the correct thing to do for the NBA to try to come back and play? I mean, that's a really tough one, BJ. I mean, I, I, I would, I'll say this. I would not want to be in Adam Silver's shoes. I would not want to be in the shoes of the, the team owners, um, of the players, of the union. They're all, this is a really difficult decision for them all to make. You know, on the one hand, uh, there, is, you know, there is still a global pandemic ongoing, and there are risks associated with it. And the result of, of, of this resumed league, how it's going to play out, whether that's worthwhile, on some level, it feels like maybe it's not. Maybe you know, maybe you should just put this off. But there's hundreds of millions of dollars at stake too, and you know that 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 is that is a huge, huge part of this. It may be the only important part of this, aside from the virus itself. That's what they're really weighing. They're weighing the health uh, concerns against the the business concerns and the ability of this league to survive this period, because. Every game that you play is that many more millions back in the coffers. It's going to be a loss regardless, right? Because we, we wiped out a bunch of, you know, a, you know, a few months of season, and they're not making up all those games. So regardless of, of what they do in Orlando, the league is going to have lost probably hundreds of millions in this calendar year. It's going to affect the salary cap. It's going to affect budgets for next season. It's going to affect all kinds of stuff. So what you're doing by bringing 22 teams instead of 16, which is what I think they should have done, but it's easy for me to say, um, but you bring more teams, you have more games, you 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 know you uh, reduce the losses that much more because those are games that are generating revenue. Um, whether they should or they shouldn't, I feel like is just a question that's beyond me. Um, I you know I, I think this is going to be somewhat uncomfortable. I, I you know you, it's it, I'll, I'll be I'll I think we're all going to be kind of holding our breath like let's just hope nobody gets sick. Let's hope especially that some of the older coaches like Mike D'Antoni or Greg Popovich. Um, Alvin Gentry, that they don't catch this because the league decided to, I don't want to say rush into this, but the league decided that they needed to do this. Um, you know, whatever regulations they come up with, and we'll, we'll know them soon, I'm sure they're going to be well thought out. I'm sure they're going to be thorough, but nothing is perfect. And let's be clear, there is risk involved here. And, and Howard, real quick, 22 teams, just talk us through how this abbreviated uh, kind of play in return would be and, and how this works with getting it back to the, the 16 team playoff. Yeah. I mean, look, in all likelihood, we're just, we're going to see the same eight teams in the East. They're only bringing one extra Eastern conference team, the wizards. And then in the West, you've got um, what five teams beyond the, the, the teams that were uh, in the top eight spots when the season was suspended. Uh, everybody's going to play, to our knowledge at this point, and th- things are still a little bit fluid. Uh, everybody will play eight games as kind of a ramp up. Those will be, they're, they're, they're kind of referring to them as seeding games. I don't know if those are, they're not playoff games. They're not regular season games. They're, they're you know, it's like this little mini tournament. And, but those, those wins and losses will accrue to, to the standings as they stood. So if you were on the outside looking in, if you're the Portland Trailblazers, you can make up that ground on the Memphis Grizzlies and, and displace them as the eighth seed. But then trying to remember what the gap has to be. If you're within four games of the eighth seed, two games, of the, whatever it is, I, I can't remember the exact details. Then there'll be this uh, you know, quick play in where the ninth seed would have to beat the eighth seed twice, but the eighth seed would only have to beat the ninth seed once. Um, it's all confusing. Sounds like, it sounds like the old, uh, hoop it up three on three tournament rules in the, uh, once you're in the loser's bracket. 
Look, the bottom line is this. I won't say that I don't care who gets the eighth seed in the West, which is really the only place that, that is, is up for grabs. Um, but look, we we know in this league, you know, seventh and eighth seeds are, are cannon fodder in the first round. It's, you know, this is all being playing, you know, for the right to get knocked out by LeBron in the first round. And look, there's still something at stake because, you know, the trailblazers are a pretty good team when they're whole. And if they have Nurkic and Collins back, uh, Hey, maybe they give the the Lakers, you know, a, a big push in the first round there, or at least you know might wear them down for for further opponents after that. It, it could still be significant. The other thing, of course, is that some of the standing spots are still up for grabs. Like you know, the, the, you know, in the West especially, like these teams could still go up or down in the seedings, um, and that matters too, of course, just for matchups. For sure, for sure, a, a lot there to consider, and I'm I'm imagining a Damian Lillard, C.J. McCollum, Carmelo Anthony. Uh, and then you mentioned Collins and Nurkic possibly returning. Imagine that matchup in the first round with the Lakers, who, unfortunately for them, they were playing their best ball of the season uh, before this happened, and they've got to get that engine going again. So uh, as we know, anything can happen. Usually ones and twos are, are, uh, take care of business, but we, we've seen crazier things happen before. And as you've mentioned multiple times, this is completely unprecedented. And it's going to be unlike anything we've ever seen. So um, here's to hoping they figure it out safely and strategically. And it would be great to have some basketball back, but but only um, only under the right circumstances. So um, pivoting here, as I as I love to say, both on, on the low post uh, on the block and on our show, um, it's hard to believe Howard Beck um, that 20 years ago. I was fresh out of college. BJ was finishing up his NBA career and you were smack in the middle of covering the Los Angeles Lakers. And I I can't describe enough how thrilling it was to read your recent oral history on the Portland Trailblazers, Los Angeles Lakers game seven, Kobe to Shaq lob moment, which I was so happy to find all of the voices, all of the context around it, because it's not just the play, it's everything that led up to the play and all of those incredible characters on those teams. Before we get into some of the nitty gritty, when you sat down to do this, um, what was the strategy uh, in that basketball brain of yours? Well, thanks for, for the kind words on it all. Um, that was that was like a passion project. I've been wanting to, to write this one for, for years, and it was one of my favorite games, that game seven, one of my favorite moments, the lob from Kobe to Shaq, and one of my favorite series that I've ever covered, maybe maybe the best of series I've ever covered. Um, it, you know, my thought was the lob itself is what everybody remembers, and what people forget is that the lob, it didn't win the game. It wasn't a go-ahead basket. It wasn't – it wasn't decisive. It was kind of the the final dagger, um, but it was it, it really represents one this clinching of a partnership between Kobe and Shaq in a very critical moment, the moment that that truly launched the dynasty. But it also was the uh, punctuation mark on a comeback from 15 points down in the fourth quarter of a game seven, which at the time was the biggest fourth quarter comeback I think. I don't know if it was in conference finals history, just game seven history, but that was huge. And 15 points back then was a lot. Um, so, you know, there, there's just so many layers to this. And then the other piece of it broadly was that this was this ultimate sliding doors moment, because 
if the Blazers had won, and maybe they should have, um, there may be no Laker dynasty to speak of. Maybe Shaq and Kobe win only one title in three years, or maybe they win zero. You know, they're, they're, they're the third year of the three-peat. They were also in a game seven of the conference finals, overtime even, and that one was on the road at Sacramento. And so, you know, it was it, it's these thin margins that sometimes define teams and eras and the difference between a dynasty and, and, and a non-dynasty or a disappointment, in fact, is, is a couple of plays, a couple of minutes of basketball spread over the course of a few years. And so that, those things are always fascinating to me. And so I, I always wanted to, 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 to do this, to revisit this, this moment. And I knew that to do it right, I wanted to hit all those layers that I just mentioned. And I knew to do it right, I needed to get you know, just as many voices as I could. And, and not everyone is, is easily available. I would have loved to talk to Rashid Wallace. Um, but as we know, Rashid is, is not the most, uh, you know, media friendly of, uh, <laughs> of, of basketball figures. Um, and I, I, I say that with all respect, like, it's fine. Like, it, he has no obligation. He certainly has no obligation now. Um, Bonzi Wells, uh, who I had a great conversation with for this story, Bonzi said he would ask Rashid for me. So I, I appreciate Bonzi's efforts, but Bonzi could not quite convince Rashid to uh, to chat. But um, but I got five players from each team, um, and the, you know they were all rotation players. It was all you know important guys. You know, getting getting Shaq obviously was key on the Lakers side. Rick Fox, Robert Ory, Derek Fisher, Brian Shaw. I emailed a little bit with Phil Jackson. Phil was. Uh, uh, you know, decided he didn't want to go full bore on this one, which is fine. I got Mike Dunleavy, you know, obviously who coached the Blazers. Um, Scotty Pippen was huge. Bonzi was fantastic. Damon Stoudemire, Greg Anthony, Steve Smith. And so I think that was able, with, with all those voices, I could paint the fullest possible picture of how these teams viewed each other, of what that moment meant for all of them. And it was just, it was so much fun to do. It was, it was, it was great. I'm glad people enjoyed it. And, you know, and Howard, from your, from your perspective, you know, and, and speaking with everyone, I'm just watching, watching that series as a casual fan. What was the turning point? Cause the Lakers were up what three, one in the series. Yeah. The Lakers were up three to one in the series. So the, the, the thing about the Lakers back then, especially that first year, you know, they won 67 games and they won the championship. So I think people just think, oh, well, of course, you know, there, there was this, this dominant team. They were like the Warriors just like smashing everybody on the way to the title or something. And it just wasn't the case. They, they won 67 games in the regular season, but that was a surprise. Nobody saw that coming even their first year under Phil Jackson. And when they got to the playoffs, sure, they entered as the favorites at that moment. But before the season started, they weren't even viewed as the favorites. The Spurs were, were – considered the favorites to repeat as, as champs. The Blazers were picked by a lot of people ahead of the Lakers. The LA Times had the Lakers fifth in the West before the season started. And so they came together much faster and acclimated to the triangle much faster than anybody anticipated. But they get to the playoffs, and here they are, this swaggering team with Shaq, who's you know the most dominant player in the game. He just he won the MVP that year nearly unanimously, should have been unanimously. Kobe is, is only 21, but he's already an all-star. They've got some good role players, although people at that time weren't sure about those guys. And they go up to – best of five first round back then. They go up two zip on the eighth-seeded Sacramento Kings, who are not the, the powerhouse Kings yet. They're just the eighth seed. The Lakers are up 2-0 on them, and they lose the next two in a row in Sacramento, and now they've got to face a life-or-death game five against an eighth seed, flirting with disaster. Now, I think if I recall, they blew him out that game. 
But still, they let it get there. They go to the second round. They go up three-zip on the Phoenix Suns. And then they lose game four by double digits and just were never even in it at all. They closed it out in five. They were never really in danger. But still, they're flirting with disaster. They just, they just didn't know how to, to deal with success. And so it was just the same thing when they got to the conference finals. Um, they, they split the first two games. The Blazers won game one – or uh, excuse me, game two at Staples Center – to steal home court advantage. Lakers get it back. They're up 3-1, and then they lose the next two in a row, including losing another game at Staples Center in, uh, in game five. So it's – and, you know, the, the whys and the hows, well, because the Blazers were really good. Like, it wasn't some specific aspect of, of, of X's and O's or execution specifically. It was more about, to me, the Blazers were just really good at the right spots, right? Like they had multiple guys who could make Kobe really work at both ends. Scotty Pippen, Steve Smith, Bonzi Wells, these are all physical wings who could put, you know, take Kobe down to the block, who could make him really work on offense uh, for his shots. And not not many teams had that kind of arsenal to throw at him. And then Arvio Sabonis was one of the few guys who actually was as, as big and powerful as Shaq. Now he was not as nimble as Shaq, so that was a problem. But Sabonis could certainly stand up to him, and he had three-point shooting range, so he could pull Shaq out of the paint. And then they had, you know, a, a wealth of bigs you know, in Rashid and Brian Grant and, and a young Jermaine O'Neal. Um, so it just – they presented pretty big challenges, and they were a veteran team. And so they, they gave the Lakers all they could handle. That team was so good and has become so forgotten – and Howard, you covered it. BJ, you played against so many of these guys. Can we just talk for a minute about how good, first off, Steve Smith was and for, for how long? And that game seven, he is lighting the Lakers up until the momentum turns. B- BJ, what, what kind of player was Steve Smith to like to deal with? Well, people don't recall, you know, Steve is from Detroit. And uh, so I've been knowing Steve since he was a young man, watching him grow up and going to Michigan State, coming to the league. And when he first came in the league, people forget they thought he was a point guard. And Steve always had a great feel for the game. And his game advanced. Um, And what I mean by that is he began to explore the post, utilize his height because he was, you know, 6'7 or so, probably bigger than that. And uh, he just – he had a great feel for the game. So – when you watch and, you know, as you play and you go, you advance in the playoffs, you know, size does matter, especially at the guard position. And Steve is, was a very capable score as a, you know, as you just alluded to. And then all of a sudden you throw in his ability to initiate the offense and take over some of the point guard duties along with another big guard and Scotty Pippen and Bonzi Wells and all of those guys. And suddenly now you have a problem because uh, those are three, you know, they all bring something unique to the game. So, but Steve Smith was an incredible player, had an amazing career. And, um, you know, I think he won a championship there in San Antonio, if I remember, if I remember correctly. Yes. Uh, yeah. in, in San Antonio. So uh, he was more than a capable player and provided many problems for many years uh, that I had an opportunity to play against him professionally. And, uh, but, you know, that's nothing new to us. We've been watching Steve since, you know, his days back in Detroit growing up, and uh, it was uh, it, it was incredible to watch. And, and Howard, you look at how um, 
I connected with Bonzi back in the fall. He came by one of our all the smoke tapings and we've been in touch a lot since and it got me back into how that team was constructed and they get Steve Smith by trading J.R. Ryder and they bring Pippen in after his uh, first year in Houston doesn't work out after the, 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 the bulls are broken up. You talk about it in your oral history where if the Blazers win that game, they've got a very good chance to win a championship and they don't make some of the moves that are made um, that off season, which of course is uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It's Brian Grant is gone. Jermaine O'Neal is gone. Sean Kemp and Dale Davis brought in. You combine that with the fact that the East's finals representatives the next few years are not exactly all time great teams that we think about. What could have this bla- what what could have the, what could have this Blazers team been if that fourth quarter goes another way? Well, according to Steve Smith, they get the three feet. <laughs> so now the the Lakers disagreed a little bit when I put that to them. Smitty was one of my first interviews, so I I, I got to parade his quotes to all the Lakers <laughs> once I talked to them. Um, but Smitty said and he was smiling, but I th- I mean it, it was not. It was not entirely in jest, but, and I don't, and also he's not wrong. Like they had the potential to do that. Uh, they were, they were stacked enough. They were talented enough. Now they had some age issues. You know, Scotty had a lot of miles on him. Uh, Sabonis was 35 and had a, 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 obviously a lot of miles on him and had come to the NBA late in his career, as we know. Um, Detlef Shrimp was on that team was part of the rotation and, and was up there in years. Smitty still had some good years left, um, but they had a young Jermaine O'Neal and, they had Brian Grant, and they, so they had this depth. And Rashid, Rashid was a beast. This is one of the stories that I couldn't really get into or one of the you know, layers or tangents that I couldn't explore as much in this story because there's just only so much room. Um, but Rashid was as talented to me as, as any of the other power forwards of that era. And, and, and I, yes, I'm saying that he was as talented as Garnett and Duncan and Chris Webber and all the rest. If he wanted to be that kind of player with the gaudy numbers, he could have been. It's not the way he was built. It's not the way he played, but the dude was amazing. Um, Inside game, outside game, ball handling skills, incredibly smart, great defender. Um, And so that team, if, you know, if they win, you're not flipping a a disgruntled Jermaine O'Neal for an older Dale Davis, who is, you know, while a fine player, Dale Davis did not have obviously the, you know, uh, where the, the the broad game, the diverse game, the the skill set, and also the youth, of course, that Jermaine O'Neal had, and they traded Brian Grant, who had a you know had contract demands that they didn't want to meet, um, as was his right, and they they sign and trade him in a deal that brings them back a you know older, overweight, and and still troubled Sean Kemp, who ends up I think playing one season before he has to go into into rehab for drugs. Um, so it, it really it really hurts them making those moves, and if you win the championship you're more inclined to spend. You're more inclined to want to keep together a good thing and not mess with chemistry. And so who knows if they keep those guys together. Now Sabonis starts to age out. Okay, great. Jermaine O'Neal has been dying to get those minutes. Now he's getting those minutes. And, you know, they could have kept, uh, you know, replenishing along the edges or around the edges along the way. And yeah, they, I think they would have beaten the Pacers in year one. Year two of the Laker three-peat was against the Sixers. That team was not very good. Um, I think the Blazers, again, if they make it back to the finals, they could, have, they could have won that one, and they certainly could have won year three against the New Jersey Nets, who the Lakers swept. So, you know, I mean, 
it, it, it's hard to, to, to map out the whole counterfactual because, you know, how good would the Lakers have been? How many changes would they have made? Would they have screwed up their chemistry that they were building by sure. jettisoning Ori and Fox and Fisher or these guys? Where would the Spurs be in this whole thing? The Kings are rising along the way. So there's no guarantee the Blazers would have won three, but they definitely would have had one. Yeah, and you mentioned those other teams. Just think about, like, the Western Conference playoffs back then, obviously, were some great matchups. It would have elevated it even more if the Blazers had kept it together. And I think about a young, evolving Jermaine O'Neal playing next to Rasheed Wallace, and that's just flat-out frightening to think about. (laughs) BJ, am I wrong on Rasheed? Well, I'll say this about Rasheed. Um, in playing in that era and, and watching these guys, Rasheed was he was gifted. You know, they, we talk about players who are talented. You know, Rasheed had all of the gifts. And without question, you know, Rasheed was one of those players at any given moment that could really take over a game just with his talent. He, you know, we talk about offensively what he could do. Defensively, he could block shots. You know, he could play, you know, play, you know, be a rim protector. He was a great interior defender and he was athletic as any. So, you know, you're talking about the great players of that era at the power four position when that was a monster position, right? You had, um, you know, you had Tim Duncan, you know, you had Kevin Garnett, you know, you know, you had, uh, you know, uh, Carl Malone was still there. You had all of these players and without hesitation, Rasheed Wallace, could play the game at the highest level. And I think that's what made him such a unique player is because Rasheed Wallace could take over a game. You know, he had that turnaround jump shot on the box that that was just really unguardable. And um, he was a phenomenal, phenomenal player. And, um, you know, that was a great team. It was a unique team. And I'm talking about the Portland Trailblazers, just because Scottie Pippen, what he brought, you know, he brought a championship swagger to that group, um, and clearly he knew how to manage a game. So I thought that was a very unique opportunity for them. But without question, if they were going to really do this and sustain it, it was going to be led by Rasheed Wallace because Rasheed Wallace, um, you know, he could. I mean, that's a guy you could throw the ball and throw the ball to, and he could carry a team just because he had an unguardable shot. I mean, the, his turnaround jump shot was just truly unguardable. And I didn't care who was playing against it. And he was every bit, I mean, I know he listed at 6'10 or 6'11, but he was every bit seven feet. And uh, he was one of the great talents that we've seen in this league in uh, many years. And, um, you know, he goes on to Detroit and, um, you know, playing alongside Ben Wallace and those guards that they had there, you could see that he was clearly the X factor of propelling the Pistons to when they won there in Detroit. So he's, he's that type of player. He was that type of player. Hey, Howard, last one for you. You know, obviously this, this season always culminates in the NBA Finals, and we've seen so many incredible matchups and moments. And I think along the way, people get lost in some of the great conference finals. People just forget as time goes by. And it's, it's one thing we're going to be highlighting here Um as we move hopefully towards the the return of the NBA into these summer months, can, can you frame up this conference finals in terms of the last, you know, couple of decades, whether it's the last, you know, maybe since the beginning of the bird magic era, 
which obviously you're a student of, um, and along with how long you've been covering the game, just how great of a series this was, along with the domino effect it created uh, due to the result. Yeah, well, you know, clearly, as, as we've discussed, it, it does change history. It, it certainly changes history because it does launch the Shaq Kobe dynasty. It does snuff out what was potentially a, a, a perpetual powerhouse in Portland. The Lakers end up sweeping them the next two years in the first round, both years, 3-0, 3-0. And so it's, it's really just they go, they go from being one of the best teams in the league to just being an afterthought very quickly. And so there, there's that impact. There's the way it affected the Lakers. There's the way, it, you know, obviously there's a lot of other ripples from there. Um, in terms of that series, and conference finals, at least, you know, ones that I've covered. I mean, that one and, and the seven-game series against the Kings two days, two, two, days, two uh, years later uh, were two of the best series, two of the most intense that, that I've ever covered. And, you know, trying to, to flash forward, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about other series. You know, it's, it's different when you're not the beat writer. You know, mm-hmm. I've covered other series. I've parachuted in, in and out of series where I'm not there from start to finish. Because in the, you know these days as a national writer you're just not there plugged in all the time. It's just different when you when you feel it up close when you know these guys from being around them every single day for an entire season or or seven years as I was there. It, it's the you you feel it differently because you understand the team at a at a different level than when you're just parachuting in from the outside. And so um, I don't know what I would compare that series to other than the seven gamer against the Kings two years later, but. Those were two of the most memorable of all time for me as someone, you know, covering it up close and, and there for every minute of it. And, you know, um, there, there've been plenty of great series since obviously some, some of those Spurs heat moments in the finals and uh, you know, did Warriors, you Cavs? Yeah. Did you Cavs. cover thunder warriors at all in 16 when the, the 73 win warriors came back from three, one down did not. Um, I can't remember where I was that week or what I was working on, but no, I did not cover that series. Yeah, that was that was a, a heck of a conference final series. Um, this awesome. was great, man. This was great. BJ, anything else to throw at our guy? Hey, ours the best. Guy's seen it all. He's covered and a uh, great job, and I appreciate you uh, for coming on. No, thanks, guys. This was fun. Thanks for having me. Sure. We'll talk soon, buddy. Thank you. Take care. Great to reflect back on that classic series and what it meant to those two franchises. In the next couple of months, we'll be reliving some of the great conference finals in the last 40 years. Celtics Sixers in 81, Bulls Pacers in 98, Cavs Pistons in 07, just to name a few. We're really looking forward to those conversations. Basketball action has been paused, but the Pure Hoops lineup has continued to go on. Be sure to check out the Mike Wise Show each and every Monday with his esteemed guests. On Tuesday, it's the Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams. Wednesday features Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Aaron Berlin and Otto Strong. Thursdays, Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with the one and only Monica McNutt. And the Pure Hoops podcast each and every Friday with BJ Armstrong and yours truly, Eric Newman. Have a great weekend. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay pure. The Pure Hoops podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.